Hello, and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Again, I'm glad you could join us as we continue our journey through God's Word together, seeking to, well, as the name might suggest, to truly grasp hold of Scripture, to understand what it says and see how it applies to our lives. And today we'll be looking at the eighth chapter of the book of Hebrews, and I'm thrilled that you could join us, but I want to encourage you, if you haven't been with us as in our study of Hebrews, it would be for your benefit to back up to chapter one and pick up there as we go through our studies of different books of scripture. Each chapter tends to build on the previous and a lot of the background of the book and of its time of writing and the people that are receiving that message originally, a lot of that comes through, um, as we come across it in the various chapters. So it just, it helps to start at the beginning. So start with chapter one, but if you've been with us on a regular basis, I welcome you back. It's, it's great to have your continued listenership. And today we're going to dig into chapter eight. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts to study his word. Heavenly father, we again, thank you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, we thank you that you have provided a high priest for us, a mediator between us and you, that we may be made right with you. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy, for your word, which challenges us and encourages us in our relationship with you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we turn our attention to chapter eight, we've just come off this discussion of Melchizedek, of Christ as high priest in the order of Melchizedek and and being greater than the priesthood. So we've discussed already in Hebrews how Christ was greater than the law. Christ was greater than Moses. Christ is greater than the priesthood. And that has all been fleshed out with some background and lots of Old Testament references from the scripture. I mean, the author of Hebrews is constantly referencing back to the Old Testament. Now, as we get to chapter eight, uh, he makes clear the superiority or the supremacy of Christ as the high priest and his ministry as high priest being more significant than the earthly high priest in the earthly temple. And as you might guess, The whole second half of the chapter, which the chapter is only 13 verses long, but the whole second portion of it is a quote from Jeremiah. Again, we're quoting from the Old Testament, but you'll see how it fits. And chapter eight is that transition chapter in the book of Hebrews. Um, He's about to transition not to just the supremacy of Christ over the law, over Old Testament, but he's going to talk more extensively about the sacrifice of Christ and the redeeming work of Christ as we go through the rest of the book of Hebrews, kind of cinching it up. If you want to see it that way, we've moved from part one to part two of the book of Hebrews. Eight is that transition point. And chapter eight starts with what it sounds like a pretty bold statement. It says, here is the main point. Wow, what a way to start a verse. You ever read a passage of scripture and go, what is the main point? Well, here it is. Uh, now, this isn't the main point of the entire book of Hebrews, although you might take it as that. The point is we have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. 
and there he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, uh, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands, as verses one and two. That is the main point, but that is the main point, the summation of all of the discussion he has had up until this point, and, and really from chapter five through chapter seven. The beginning two verses of chapter eight sums up, completes, uh, puts a bow on that discussion. Now, is that all the reference he's going to make to it? No, but he's saying, okay, here's the main point of all of that argument, all of that discussion that I've laid out here. It's this, everything else is supporting statements for that claim that he, Christ, we have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And he's going to discuss a little more about the tabernacle in the following verses. But just wanted to, to set that up and explain that here's the main point. Isn't main point of the book. It's main point of his discussion or argument uh, at this point. Ar argument's one of those words. You know, I say argument. I don't. He's not arguing but he's making a reasoned, um, well, a reasoned argument, a reasoned discussion or explanation from Old Testament text as to the reality of our relationship to God through Christ. And so that's what we have here. Now, I wanted to get that out of the way so we can really get into the further discussion of what's going on. Not that that's unimportant, but it kind of stands as that trans transition point. So wanted to emphasize that. Now let's pick up in verse three. He says, and since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest since there already are priests who offer the gifts required by the law. And there that's referenced back. He's not of the line of of uh, Levi or the line of Aaron. In fact, he's from the tribe of Judah, so he would have no claim to be a priest. He would not serve as a priest, period, because he doesn't fit the standards of the old covenant. But as has already been explained, he's in the order of Melchizedek. He predates any of those people. Uh, he's back Abraham, period. So there wasn't even an Aaron or Levi at that point. So that makes that distinction there. So if he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest since there already are priests who offer gifts required by the law. But you see what Christ was doing wasn't about earthly um, religious standards or requirements or practices. What he was doing was cosmic. Now I know that sounds kind of like, you know, early 70s, hippie lingo, but what he was doing was universal. What he was doing wasn't just in our uh, earthly existence, but was in the heavenly realms as well. It had impact everywhere. And it was part of what we saw was part of what he was doing throughout creation and beyond. Verse 5, 
they, the priest, they serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. That was the warning. Why was it important that Moses follow the pattern that he had been shown there on the mountain? Well, if you flip over to the book of Revelation or refer back to previous podcasts on the book of Revelation, you're going to see that the book of Revelation pretty early on starts describing the throne room of God, that heavenly throne room or tabernacle, if you will, tent is what tabernacle means, but that that heavenly dwelling place of God, that place of worship, that place where he sits enthroned. And as you start listening to the description there, you begin to understand that the earthly tabernacle, the wilderness tabernacle, and later Solomon's temple and then Herod's temple, all were built to reflect that heavenly throne room. They weren't the heavenly throne room, but they were earthly representations, shadows of it, pale copies of it, intended to represent in an earthly fashion the reality in the presence of God. And the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple coincides with the, the well, the altar and then the throne of God there in that heavenly dwelling. So it was seen that as the priest once a year went into the Holy of Holies, they were entering into that most holy place, that place that, that represented being before the throne of God in heaven. Pale copy, but still massively important massively draped in meaning and significance. Now, we see the fulfillment, no longer the shadow or the pale copy, but we see the reality of it when we get to Revelation, particularly Revelation 20, 21, new heaven, new earth, uh, new Jerusalem of God descending to earth, uh, the, the river flowing from the throne of God out through the city, though the world being lit by the radiance of his presence, his glory, um, that is what the earthly tabernacle and later temple represented. And it's incredibly significant. But as the author of Hebrews points out, look, it's just a pale copy. So yes, Jesus is high priest, but not in an earthly sense, because then he doesn't even qualify. And the system he wouldn't qualify to be in is just a pale copy of the reality in the presence of God. We've got more than that. We've got Jesus. Now, the author of Hebrews, having established that the earthly tabernacle and later temple is a reflection, shadow, a, a, a pale copy of the throne room of God, now we move into dealing with the priest's role in that place as we get to verse six. But now Jesus, our high priest, 
has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. So verse 6 is just loaded with significance. What does it say? Well, not only you know has he already established that the heavenly temple is the point, the earthly stuff is a mere reflection of that, but now he's setting up Jesus. Well, he's already done this, but here he's making clear the argument. Jesus is now high priest, not in the earthly temple, because he wouldn't even qualify for that, but in that heavenly temple, the one that the earthly one is a copy or a shadow of. And, and so it, it really elevates Jesus, is pointing out the superiority of Christ. Remember, all of this is written to a community that is of a Hebrew or Hebraic or Jewish background and encouraging those that have come to faith in Christ to stay in that faith, to not walk away from the Christian faith back into Judaism, which is a fail, uh, not failed, a, a pale, that's the word I'm looking for, a paled shadow of the reality of Christ. And so all of this discussion has been around that point, that it is Christ that saves, that Christ is that mediator with God, that Christ does everything that they had hung their hat on in the Old Testament. The law, Christ is superior to it. The prophet Moses, Christ is superior. Um, the temple, Christ is superior. You know, the role of the priest and everything. So this is an idea that the author has been hammering on. And verse six, I just expresses it beautifully, I think. But now Jesus, our high priest, there's that, that personal claim there. We are connected with him. He is our high priest. He has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. What he does is far, they had to sacrifice for their own sins and then make sacrifices for the people. And this went on all the time with the yearly atonement sacrifice, but with all the other ones as well. With Jesus is one sacrifice because he is sinless and his sacrifice is adequate. His sacrifice is complete for what needed to be sacrificed for, for our sins. It paid the price. As the song said, he paid a price he did not owe. I owe a debt I cannot pay. Yeah, that's it. He did it. His ministry is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. You may go, wait a minute. So what about the old covenant? Well, the old covenant has been completed it is no longer relevant because it has closed out and there is now a new covenant carrying forward, one that is better, one that is based on better promises. The old covenant dealt with obligations. The old covenant dealt with the law. And the reality, and Paul points this out extensively in his writings in the New Testament, the reality is the old covenant, the law, pointed out our sin. It showed us repeatedly and at every stop along the way where we fell short of the nature and glory of God. 
as Paul says it, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law points out our sin. In so doing, it shows us our need for a Savior. The sacrifices, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was set up to point towards Jesus, towards the one complete adequate sacrifice, because all of the Old Testament sacrifices had to be done over and over and over and over and over again, because they were not adequate to atone for the sins of the people. But God had promised there would be a perfect sacrifice that would atone for the sins of the people. So under the Old Covenant, there was this obvious reminder of our sin before God, the law, and our need for a Savior. And there was a sacrificial system that was set up reflecting the reality of heaven, with the temple being a copy or a shadow of the throne room of God, of entering his presence, of having that type of a relationship. It was a reflection of that, but it was still inadequate. And it pointed towards what God had promised, just as the temple pointed towards, or the tabernacle pointed towards the presence of God in his throne room in heaven. The sacrifices pointed towards Christ. So now we move on into verse 7 where we're talking about those better promises. And verse 7 is the lead-in to, well, all the rest of it, which is a quote from Jeremiah. So let's look at this. In verse 7 it says, If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But God found fault with the people. See, the problem with the first covenant was our sin. Yeah, that's the problem. Sin. The second covenant, sin is not the problem because sin has been atoned for. It's been paid for by Christ. Christ died on the cross for our sins to pay in entirety the penalty for our sins so that that price is no longer on our head. And so that we can have right relationship with God. He is our high priest. Mediating between us and God. And we're going to touch on that point further as we continue on throughout this book of Hebrews. But get that point down because it is fundamental It is fundamental to who we are as believers and followers of Christ. It is fundamental in the reality of our world and our existence that our creator loves us and he stepped in to his creation to do what was needed, to pay the price that we had brought upon ourselves so that we wouldn't have to. That's love. That is love that sacrifices of itself for the benefit of others, not for what it can get out of it, but it is love that looks to the other. It's it's a beautiful example. 
it's a beautiful standard for us. Now, in talking about the fault or the inadequacy of the first covenant, uh, there in chapter 8 it says, but God found fault with the people, or when God found fault with the people, he said. Uh, That's verse 8, and that is the lead-in to this quote from Jeremiah that I keep talking about. It is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, verses 31 through 34 of the 31st chapter of Jeremiah. And of course, if you go back and read the Old Testament in your Bible and look up this passage, it may read slightly different. Understand the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament prophets or from the Old Testament period are quotes from the Septuagint, the 200 BC Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So there's a little bit of uh, variation in the way it might read from looking over at the Hebrew into English translation of your Bible, uh, assuming you're reading an English Bible. If you're not, you're going to have trouble with this podcast, unless you're like me and just have trouble with the English language altogether, but be that as it may. All right. The second part of verse eight, well, the first part, but when God found fault with the people, he said, now listen to what he said. This is a quote from from Jeremiah. This is a quote about the, the Old Testament covenant people of Israel. This is pertaining to uh, their sin and judgment, their exile in Babylon and the promise of their return and what God was going to do. This new work, if you will, that God was going to be about. This is talking about the coming of a new covenant that isn't a covenant that is that is corrupted or twist, not corrupted, twisted by our sin, but instead a covenant in which sin has been taken out of the equation by the sacrifice of Christ. Hear what he says, quoting from Jeremiah, the day is coming says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and I led them out of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is a new covenant, or this is the new covenant I will make. Now, what's the deal with that? The old covenant had stipulations. If you do these things, then I will do these things in response. Or if you don't do these things, then here are the consequences, the penalties for not doing these things that I will take. The nation of Israel had lived that out, okay? As Israel, later as the divided kingdom, Israel and Judah, they had lived out that experience, And it led to the northern kingdom of Israel being wiped out by the Assyrians. It led to the southern kingdom of Israel uh, being leveled and being taken into captivity and exile in Babylon for a number of years and then returning. But still, once they returned, they were under the Medo-Persian Empire. Then they were under the the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. then uh, or Macedonian Empire, I guess technically. Uh, then after that, the 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 governments that came that were his generals dividing up the land. Then the Romans came and conquered uh, you know, Ptolemy and all that. They never were what they once were. 
uh, even to now, they have never been what they once were. But God is saying, hey, I've got a plan. There is a day coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant. So it's not going to be like that one. It's going to be different. I will make a new covenant. They did not remain faithful to my covenant. So I turned my back on them, says the Lord. Verse 10. But this is the new covenant I will make with my people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. Folks, that is a promise a promise from God saying, hey, that old system, it's inadequate. It's failed. It's failed because of sin. But I'm going to make a new covenant. And in that new covenant, the relationship's going to be different. In that new covenant, it's not going to be something outside of you that you're trying to adhere to. It's going to be the very presence of God in your life, writing his word on your hearts and minds so that you will be able to follow him, that it will be in you part of who you are. And as far as your sin goes, he says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sin. Why? Because he's atoned for it. It's been paid for. The penalty has been taken and endured by God himself in Christ Jesus on the cross. And after taking that penalty of sin, after death rose again to show forgiveness for sin, but also the power over death, that death, the penalty of sin, has been conquered. It is no longer an obstacle. As our sin is no longer an obstacle. That's the promise of the new covenant. That is the covenant that Christ Jesus ex- established. It is what we live under now. And it is so much better than what was. Because our sins have been forgiven and will never again be remembered. That is what God says about us. That is how he sees us. Are we sinless? No. Oh, I wish we were. But even better, we're forgiven. Because we don't achieve sinless in this life. But we have 
God's law in our minds and on our hearts. We have the indwelling presence of the Spirit of Christ, as Paul talks about in Romans 8, as a seal, as a mark upon our life, declaring that we belong to Him. And He guides us, and He speaks to our heart, and He convicts us of sin so that we can bring our life into a pattern, into a behavior that is pleasing to God. Why? Because we want to please the one who has saved us. Not because we have to do these things to be right with God. Because as the old covenant showed us, we can never do these things right enough to be right with God. We're sinners. We needed our sin taken care of. The new covenant takes care of our sin because God forgives it and says he will never remember it again. All believers in Christ, all followers of Christ are part of this new covenant that he established. This new covenant that our great high priest established and mediated for us is the culmination of the promise of God as shown through the prophet Jeremiah back in Jeremiah 31. And then the chapter finishes out with verse 13. Now, verse 13 reads very simply. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date, and it will soon disappear. We have a new covenant. I love this. This is, this is beautiful. Our, our congregation recently celebrated what we call our observance of the Lord's Supper. Some of you call it communion. Some of, it, some of you may call it the Eucharist, and there's different thoughts behind it. But essentially, what we did was looked at the passages of Scripture related to the Last Supper. And as I think about that, you have Jesus taking the cup and saying, This is my blood. This is a new covenant in my blood. He was speaking of this, this new covenant here in Jeremiah that we see reflected in Hebrews 9. Uh, and it is a beautiful thing. And now the author of Hebrews pointing back to Jeremiah saying, when God speaks of a new covenant, he means that first one is obsolete. It is now out of date, and it's soon going to disappear. That covenant that originally just pointed to our sin, that showed us that we had fallen short of the glory of God, that showed us we needed a Savior, that covenant, it, it doesn't really matter anymore. Because the answer to the problem of our sin has been found in the new covenant. The Old Covenant pointed out our need for a Savior. The New Covenant is our Savior, Christ Jesus. So, chapter 8 really shows the supremacy of Christ. We've had Christ as supreme to the law, Christ as supreme to the 
prophet Moses, Christ as supreme to the priesthood and the, the whole temple sacrificial system. Now we have Christ and the new covenant in him as supreme to the old covenant. And now we don't need to worry about the old covenant. We need to be focused on the new covenant relationship we have with God. As stated in his word from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah. Let's look to the new covenant. Let's look to Christ with our lives. And let's live out his word, his laws being in our minds and written on our hearts because he is our God. Let's worship him with our lives and our words with all of our deeds. Let's worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you call us to obedience in you. And we thank you that you provided a way of salvation. That you came and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus the Christ. That you provided an atoning sacrifice for our sin and gave us a new covenant a new relationship with you. Taking our sin out of the picture and living in our hearts. Lord, we thank you for this awesome gift and the reminder of it that we see here in the book of Hebrews. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for Jesus the Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.